Hello, and thank you for joining our Journal Club in Oncology podcast. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and are part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech. In this episode, Dr. Adam Kate and Dr. John Allen discuss special considerations in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and COVID-19. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CLL. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Kate is an assistant professor of internal medicine at The Ohio State University, Columbus. Dr. Allen is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Our discussion today will be based on the following papers. COVID-19 Severity and Mortality in Patients with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, a joint study by ERIC, the European Research Initiative on CLL, and CLL Campus by Lydia Scarfo et al. Outcomes of COVID-19 in Patients with CLL, a multi-center international experience by Anthony Maytow et al. And a case study, Ibrutinib for chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the setting of respiratory failure from severe COVID-19 infection by Adam Yu Lin et al. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's join our discussion. Uh, Dr. Kate and Dr. Allen, thank you for joining us today. Um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, according to the American Cancer Society, was estimated to account for just over 21,000 cases and about 4,100 deaths in 2020. Um, it's also responsible for about a quarter of all new leukemia cases and affects mostly the elderly. COVID-19 is adding a new wrinkle for patients with CLL and other chronic diseases. The three papers we are looking at today focus on this patient population who have also contracted COVID-19. So let's begin our discussion. Uh, what is your take on these papers and the treatment of CLL with BTKI inhibitor ibrutinib? Um, and also, what is your clinical experience with ibrutinib in your CLL patients who develop COVID-19? Dr. Kate, if you'd begin. Sure. Uh, so these three papers are all uh, very interesting. So I think uh, looking at the ERIC study and the study that was performed uh, mostly in the U.S., um, it's a nice uh, compare and contrast. But I think um, when we talk about each of these papers, I think what's remarkable is that they both have a lot of similarities as well, um, which we can, we can touch upon. Um, and then the third is a, a case report that talks about the use of abrutinib in um, somebody who had CLL with COVID-19 uh, and sort of uh, can lead as a sort of uh, jumpstart to talk about uh, BTK inhibitors in COVID-19. So I think that um, there's promising preclinical data to support the use of abrutinib in treatment of COVID-19, and there's uh, an active clinical trial uh, looking at that as well. And so I think answering that question specifically about ibrutinib and COVID-19 is a separate story altogether. Um, and uh, obviously there's enough justification to uh, start a clinical trial. Um, I think uh, focusing on the question of use of ibrutinib for somebody with CLL and COVID-19 is a specific question that we can address today. Okay, Dr. Allen. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, these 
data, you know, are are from the earlier times in the in the pandemic. And so I think it'll be kind of interesting to see with some of the knowledge that we've gained if these um, you know, outcomes and and predictors and things like this will will change and if uh, we start to see maybe improvements because we are implementing, you know, newer therapies and and we are handling patients very differently than we were in March and in April, kind of in the the peak pandemic time when uh, here in the U.S. at least, and the rest of the world. You know, I think the case report is really interesting because it was kind of the first time that, you know, brought this to the forefront of, hey, you know, these BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib specifically, potentially, may have these anti-inflammatory effects that obviously as we started to gain knowledge that patients were really succumbing, not necessarily due viral shedding and um, causes from the virus itself, but rather the inflammatory milieu that's um, you know, secondary to the virus, then it started to open up this whole field basically of using anti-inflammatory type of therapies and um, you know, ibrutinib being one. And, and I think uh, you know, you see these case reports and it's very intriguing and eluding. And then obviously these studies also start to try to allude a little bit to the effects that BTK inhibitors may have in um, COVID-19, specifically in CLL patients. And I think it's it's interesting and, and it's been kind of exciting to kind of see how the field's been changing. We get more data. You know, I think there's still a little early to really make anything uh, certain, uh, have any certainty about how these drugs should be used um, and or whether or not they're effective for for our patients. But, um, you know, it's something that has informed our my practice. And I think that's something that we'll be talking about a little bit further as, as we get going into the podcast. Can you both expand a little bit on your clinical experience with abrutinib and your CLL patients who have COVID? Sure. And I think something that I'm curious to know is, so being in the Midwest and John being in New York, I'm curious to know if there's any differences in the way that we do approach our COVID patients, um, especially given he probably saw a lot more patients at the beginning of the pandemic, and I saw more patients maybe in the in the middle of the pandemic when we had more options and our treatments kind of had changed. I think nowadays everyone's seeing a lot of patients, so it's not it's we're probably a more unfortunate playing field here, even playing field. So you know, what's, what's interesting, I think, and we'll, and we'll talk about this a little bit, is um, in, in both the studies, uh, in, in the Eric study and uh, in the Mato study, um, a lot of patients uh, were stopped. Uh, they, they stopped their brutinib uh, when they presented with COVID-19. And here at our institute, we're very comfortable with our BTK inhibitors, especially a brutinib. And so we tend not to stop. Um, and so when we saw this data, we were surprised that people just didn't continue on the abrutinib. Um, regardless of their COVID infection, because we tend to increase, we tend to continue on uh, giving the BTK inhibitor um, unless uh, somebody is seriously ill. And so I think um, that's, uh, that's something that's, 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 uh, that was interesting that, they, that, that was both seen in, in both the studies, meaning that the way I practice is not necessarily um, ubiquitous amongst uh, CL docs. So that was sort of a, a surprising thing for me, but typically even at the start of the COVID pandemic, um, we would generally continue our uh, uh, patients who were on BTK inhibitors unless they became seriously ill and required um, uh, intubation, basically, was sort of the, the cutoff. And um, I think there's always concern with stopping BTK inhibitors, especially when patients come into the hospital because they can get a flare of their CLL that could worsen their symptoms. So that's something that we um, always worry about when we stop abrutinib abruptly is that we worry that they might have this uh, flare phenomenon um, that can infl- uh, maybe basically mimic uh, the inflammatory presentation of COVID-19 in a lot of respects. 
So we tend to continue the ibrutinib um, unless they are severely ill in the ICU, um, usually intubated. And uh, that's usually what we do. And so that's what we've been doing for COVID-19 too. And we continue to do that now. And Dr. Allen? Yeah, I mean, I think a classic kind of teaching in general is, you know, you're on these immunosuppressive therapies. If there is a significant infection is typically to, to hold the drugs. Um, you know, clinical trials, grade three, four infections, things like that. If you're hospitalized, SAEs, you know, you typically hold these drugs. And so, you know, I think that's why we saw a lot of it. We didn't really know what's going on. You know, with BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib, you know, there is an infectious risk that is real that you do see this. And obviously not knowing really what was going on uh, earlier in the time frame. Uh, you know, you didn't want to exacerbate things and make things worse necessarily by having an immunosuppressive drug that, okay, maybe if you can reconstitute your immune system or kind of let it kind of be its, itself, you know, maybe you can get over this virus. Obviously, we started to learn very quickly that patients continued to just worsen and uh, kind of once you held the drug, patients got very, very sick potentially. And, and you know, there are obviously uh, a significant number of deaths that we saw. And so early on, you know, I was stopping the drug just because a general paradigm is to do that for, for significant illness and, and infections. Um, but obviously there it started, you know, the early phases was, um, you know, getting pulled in every single direction, literally every day, uh, an idea was changing and what you're doing the day before was considered wrong or inappropriate. Uh, and that you would then adopt your practice to the newest way of thinking. And so uh, it was a real uh, seesaw um, uh, pendulum action. And it was frustrating, honestly. And so um, but as we started to see this data, as we started to build antidotes, as we started to say, you know what, okay, there's, there's reasoning and hypotheses why the continuing these agents would be appropriate, um, we started to shift our practice rather quickly to where, you know, our subjects and our patients that were on these drugs, when they came in with COVID-19, we continued them on. Um, and we still, to this day now, obviously continue them on. And, and outside of obviously being intubated and being able to get the, the drug into the system, um, you know, we continue these, these drugs on. And for the most part, it's anecdotal, but I do think it does seem to have some effect. And we're also in a period nowadays where we have steroids that we weren't necessarily using. Our infectious disease group and our pulmonary group was saying steroids aren't working when early on and, and, and don't do them. And then finally, uh, patients were just getting sick. I would just do them when I was on service and just saying, you know what, we need to do something and start doing them. And then obviously the data comes around. So we have uh, remdesivir, we have steroids, we have FDA approved therapies, we have antibodies now. And so I do think our experience is changing and whether or not our experience of how poor these outcomes, I hope to see, and I think we'll see that the data will show that our outcomes are better. Obviously, our CLL patients are very high risk for very bad outcomes, prolonged uh, hospitalizations and, and significant complications. Um, but anecdotally, and what I think I'm seeing is that we are seeing improved outcomes where, where we're not seeing the death rates kind of where we were that are being reported in some of these studies. Whether or not that's because we as a practice, as physicians, as CLL doctors are continuing ibrutinib, or if that's because we have steroids that we're continuing now, or if that's because we're using remdesivir and we have some of these FDA approved agents, you know, it's a multifactorial, it's really dirty kind of data to really kind of pick apart and tease apart to really know what's going forward. Obviously, we need to see some of these clinical trials that are coming out 
Um, um, but obviously, I, I echo um, uh, Dr. Kate about our, our practices now to continue BTK inhibitors in those patients. And I guess one of the questions is, and I don't know what to do if your patient is not on a BTK inhibitor, uh, how do you handle some of those subjects, et cetera? Um, but for sure, if you are on a BTK inhibitor, specifically ibrutinib, uh, we are continuing on here in our practice as well. And I think to add to that, it's just, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because um, when this time frame was happening, you know, we were talking to colleagues, asking them what they were doing because we weren't seeing the COVID that John was seeing. And so for us, it was easy for me to say, oh yeah, why aren't you continuing the BTK inhibitor? But we weren't there in the depths of the virus, seeing what they were seeing every day. So by the time the, the virus became prevalent in the Midwest, we already had this data to look at. We already knew how our New York colleagues had handled the situation. So we had basically were feeling more comfortable continuing to be decaying there. So I don't mean to downplay and you know talk about how you know I was judging them from afar, like why weren't they doing this? Because really no one knew what they were doing. And I was just saying, well, it seems like it would be a reasonable thing to do, but I wasn't, we weren't in the throes of this. Um, and I think it also adds to the fact that of what of what John alluded to too, in that um, you know, we're we're hopeful that given all the new therapies and what we do now um, have improved these survival um, uh, data that we see in these two trials, I mean, these two studies. Um, and on top of that, you know, after we saw the results of these two retrospective studies, I think that as a CLL physician, we realized that our CLL patients were really at particular risk to this virus. And my approach to my CLL patients probably became more aggressive because of that, right? Because we always assume that CLL patients are at risk for infections more than general population, but now here's definitive proof that they were doing probably worse than the general population um, for various reasons. And um, we needed to be more aggressive with our uh, messaging to them, um, as well as uh, including the messaging that if they feel not great, they need to call us. And so we were seeing them sooner, getting them evaluated sooner to hopefully um, break that admission and hopefully employ certain um, interventions to, to keep them at home. Another doctor that I had interviewed not so long ago had said that, you know, COVID has been, we've been kind of building the plane while we're flying it, you know, so maybe we're almost are to the landing gear now, but we don't quite know. What about other immunotherapy agents such as monoclonal uh, anti-CD20 antibodies? Yeah, this has been a question that's come up a couple of times. So um, for patients who are treatment naive, who we're going to initiate therapy. My practice recently has been to try to avoid therapies that require more monitoring. Um, that includes the monoclonal anti-CD20 antibodies because they do have to get it three times in the first month and then come monthly afterwards. So I've been limiting giving that. Um, and so generally my practice is to try not to give the monoclonal anti-CD20 antibody um, if I can. I've gotten a little bit more liberal with it recently as we've gotten more comfortable with COVID-19, but certainly these agents do affect your B cells. And so there's the issue with creating antibodies against the virus. And then certainly the question comes up about the vaccine now where um, we talk about this in the past, but you know we, we always talk about the flu shot and um, should we be giving it to our patients who are receiving monoclonal anti-CD20 antibodies every year? Um, and now the question is, um, should we be giving the vaccine to patients who 
um, the, the COVID vaccine to patients who have gotten recent anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. At this point, we are recommending to get the vaccine regardless of whether or not you've had a monoclonal anti-CD20 antibody because we feel like the risk benefit is, uh, is it sort of steers towards benefit. Um, we don't expect the vaccine to cause any harm to our patients. It's just the question, if they had gotten a recent anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, will they um, respond even less to the vaccine had they otherwise not? So we are using it. We are using monoclonal antibodies less than we were before. Mm-hmm. Dr. Allen. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, before the vaccine came around, and we were in the summer and in the fall, you know, the decision about treatment. I, I had kind of completely just gone back to making treatment decisions, whether it's a monotherapy BTK inhibitor versus a, a venetoclax or benetuzumab approach, and using an anti-CD20. Uh, for my patients uh, without much regard to COVID. Now, this was in a time when it was kind of quiet and, you know, prevalence rate was at like 1.5%, et cetera, in New York City. And so, um, and I remember, you know, I've talked to many of my colleagues at that time and, and everybody kind of shifted back to saying whatever's right for the patient is the appropriate thing to do at that point in time. And, and COVID, you know, was kind of in the back burner in terms of making decisions. Um, obviously, now when we are so close to a vaccine rollout to many of our patients, um, I think this pr- this question is becoming more relevant as as we as we're alluding to, um, to where you know we know anti CD twenty knocks down your influenza uh, response. Uh, we know it knocks down hepatitis B vaccination responses, Haemophilus influenza responses, et cetera. That's been pretty good data has been showing that repeatedly. Uh, similar for uh, BTK inhibitors, there. Are, there appears to be patients can mount responses to these things, but they are potentially diminished in terms of uh, vaccine responses. Now, this is a different vaccine than many of those that I'm talking about, this messenger RNA. And I don't know um, the context of whether or not this is a more potent um, serologic responding type of vaccine compared to like a conjugate or not. I, I can't really speak to that. But, you know, I do expect that with anti-CD20s, we will probably see diminished seroconversion uh, upon receiving the vaccine. With that said, and and since we're so close to this rollout, I do think um, it is giving me some pause to say if there is a patient that might be an ideal venetoclax or benetuzumab patient, let's say, and they can hold off another month or two or even three to where they might be able to get their vaccine, their full series prior to going in, there does appear some decent data that just because you've had an anti-CD20, um, you don't necessarily lose um, uh, antibodies or responses, though whether or not they're that functional uh, remains to be is a little controversial still. So, you know, I, I think going into it, if I could postpone a patient now that I'm thinking about an anti-CD20 and they can hold off another two or three months and try to get them to a vaccination series, I'll probably do that prior to then using it. But I do think uh, I'm trying to limit it as much as possible. Obviously, patients that are on it or have been recently exposed, um, I will vaccinate them if I can. If they have been just recently exposed or just completed a, a treatment course, I will maybe consider postponing it six months because it looks like six months or so uh, is when responses come back with influenza, et cetera. So I may postpone it Uh, in some of these patients that were recently exposed and maybe try to vaccinate them at the end of the year, uh, mid-summer, et cetera. Um, But I do think it's a problem. I don't know the right answer. Um, I think if you are in the thick of it and you have an opportunity to get vaccinated, 
um, probably I will recommend to go for it and do it and just see. And then maybe, uh, you know, six months later after we're completing it, as that new year comes around, um, maybe try to get another series in if possible. But um, I don't know if there's strict guidelines. Uh, we haven't developed any strict guidelines necessarily here. Again, this is another thing that's changing constantly on, on when patients will get it and how they'll be able to get access to it, et cetera. But um, I think it, it's uh, the anti-CD20 is less important for COVID because I don't know if data is really showing that it really impacts it. I've had patients develop COVID antibodies after exposure to anti-CD20, recent exposure and or during it getting COVID during a, a, a series and I've seen it, it's delayed, but um, it does seem that they mounted and can clear the virus. But um, again, I think it's gonna be much more important now that we have this vaccine on the horizon to, to really protect our patients' immune responses and, and allow them to, to mount a seroconversion that, that should be able to protect them. Would you switch them from, if they're on an anti-CD20 antibody to a BTK inhibitor? I, I probably would not. So, uh, if so, at, at this point, um, I mean, we always give a anti-CD20 antibody with venetoclax, whether it be in the frontline or in the relapse setting. Uh, the question of whether or not to give it with acalabrinib is a constant debate, and uh, we don't typically give it with the brunib, but that's also debatable. Um, in general, my practice um, is to continue on therapy if patients are responding, um, and and not to switch at this point because there's just not enough data to show that ibrutinib helps in COVID. If that data comes out, that'll be another question, right? Um, and, and just to say it, you know, unfortunately the acalabrutinib data came out, there was a press release, we don't see the data just yet, but they did not meet their primary endpoint um, for the acalabrutinib in COVID-19 study. Granted, we have more um, suspicion that ibrutinib might be beneficial given its off-target effects as opposed to a calibrunib, but that was a disappointment. So we need more data to say that we should switch. If it looks like a brunib is beneficial in COVID-19, I think that's a good question. I think I would um, not take that decision very lightly, um, and I would really have to be in an individualized discussion with patients. Dr. Allen? Yeah, I agree. I mean, if I've made a treatment decision and chose a venetoclax-based approach, uh, you know, I'm not going to switch to a BTK inhibitor just because of COVID is out there, um, especially if they're six months into it and, you know, they're getting close to, you know, getting off of the drug if we're doing this fixed duration. Um, you know, I think earlier on, it did make me wonder if there was a patient that might be a good VENG approach uh, because of some of this data emerging that maybe a BTK inhibitor would be a better therapy for them. But, you know, these are very drastic treatments and it's somewhat short-sighted in the fact that, hopefully this vaccine deals with this situation that we're in and COVID is less and less of a problem as years go by. And if you're starting someone on a BTK inhibitor now because of COVID, but they're 50, let's say, and you normally might've used a fixed duration approach for them, uh, now you kind of committed to them for something for a much longer period of time. Now, um, you know, these are all problems that you deal with and you just you know, make a decision. But right now, um, I'm not switching over to a BTK inhibitor because of this. I'm not necessarily using a BTK inhibitor uh, over a venetoclax or benetuzumab approach for a patient just because of COVID uh, if they would otherwise uh, be a, an adequate VNG patient. Um, but I think it's case dependent and um, I can't state that that's a hard and fast rule for everybody and, and it's really case, case uh, patient dependent. So basically, I think what I'm hearing both of you saying is that the main focus is treatment of the CLL. 
and that the COVID presents its own problems, but that has to be taken on a case-by-case basis for, for how the patient is treated. So COVID doesn't all of a sudden become the overriding focus of, of treatment. Yeah, and I think, you know, when COVID first hit and caused lots of issues and obviously still causing ongoing issues, there was a big rush to change what we do without having good evidence to support a change. Um, you know, you can look at what happened with hydroxychloroquine as a good example. Um, and I think that until we have good supportive data to make decisions, I would be hesitant to change something that we know works for the CLL, which patients will have after they get better with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So in general, and I, I know we've touched on this somewhat, but um, how is COVID-19 impacting the treatment of, of CLL? I mean, you know, we're talking about that that has to remain the focus, but in general, how, how is it impacting your, your practices, Dr. Kate? Yeah, so um, I think John had alluded to this before, um, that at the beginning, we were really trying to steer away from treatment that would require increased monitoring. So to be honest, I was using less phenidoclaxobinituzumab in treatment I used to patients. I was using more BTK inhibitor. Um, then sort of the summer came around and I was starting to be more liberal and, you know, go back to how I used to treat patients by uh, focusing on uh, a long conversation with patients about their preference and what I believe to be the best treatment for them and come to a mutual decision on that. And then I would say recently, given the surge uh, that's occurred now um, in the Thanksgiving Christmas holiday, I've gone uh, maybe more back to the BTK inhibitor stance and also considering what we talked about with the anti-C20 antibody and the, and, the, and the vaccine. I think at the end of the day, um, I still am giving venetoclax albinitizumab um, to patients who are really good candidates for it, but um, we do talk about the risks of COVID-19 and how uh, using a BTK inhibitor might just be easy at this time. Mm-hmm. Dr. Allen? Yeah, I mean, I think with this more recent surge and, and um Definitely just in the past two weeks, it was different than just what it was in November. And obviously with the holidays and all these things that everybody kind of uh, is pointing to as a cause of this uh, recent surge, you know, I think I am starting to now, if I have a patient right now uh, that has a two options, I am going to give some pause to a, a venetoclax anti-CD20. I think in that situation, I'm going to try to postpone treatment a little bit longer rather than saying you know, let's do something, you, you know, because sometimes our CLL patients, even though they have treatment indications, can kind of hold off another month or two or three or even four and, and kind of get to sunnier uh, pastures to, to be able to, um, you know, treat them in a less COVID environment, so to speak. So in that situation, I'm managing my patients differently. Um, obviously, if you need treatment, you need treatment. And then we need to have those discussions, whether or not a BTKI or, or whatever it is, Uh, is the right um, uh, approach at that point in time. But, um, you know, I think there's that difference. I think our our clinical trials have, in this more recent surge, have um, uh, also changed. You know, some patients are still now opting video visits. We're we're missing out on, you know, central labs and scans and things like that because patients are very fearful, rightfully so, to to come out of the house because now they've locked down. Um, and, and especially in this late, latest surge. So there are these changes that are happening that we're dealing with in our clinic. I think, you know, I had gotten away from a lot of telemedicine where patients were coming in. This is now picking up again. So it's kind of in this wave um, where things are going back to where they were kind of in March and April. 
not as horrible. I hope we don't go back there, at least in New York City, um, because that was pretty tough. And we're not quite, we're not there by any means, but, um, you know, we are going in the wrong direction. But, um, you know, we're employing all of these things. And fortunately, we're all used to it now. And so we can do it um, very easily and quickly and patients are used to it now. And so it's this learning curve is much, much less and we can pivot so easily um, and which is a nice thing for our patients and for ourselves and our systems to be able to accommodate all of these, uh, the new way to provide medicine during this pandemic. So any, any closing remarks, anything that we didn't talk about that you think would be relevant for our clinicians listening to this podcast? Dr. Kate. Sure, yeah. So um, I think that even though we are hopeful that in the current time frame that our outcomes for patients with CLL are better than what was reported in this journal article, I think that we all should be reminding our CLL patients to stay at home as much as possible. If they have symptoms of COVID-19, they should reach, us, reach out to us as soon as possible. Um, they have a high chance of decompensating, so we should have low thresholds for admission to a hospital. If they can get uh, things like BAMWAMIMIVAB, which I can never pronounce, um, they should, uh, which we have available at OSU and is a FDA-approved uh, treatment for, uh, for, for COVID-19 and patients who are likely to decompensate. So I think they should lean on uh, the therapies um, that I don't think that for CLL patients, we have as much leeway as we do for healthy patients in, in, in addressing COVID-19. So I would say if I, if I could leave any advice, it'd be have low threshold for evaluation for patients with CLL and COVID-19. Dr. Allen? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, educating your patient about when to call, uh, whether or not there was exposure in the house. Uh, these are people that we need to get tested and, and, and be uh, aware of and kind of, you know, have uh, every kind of other day, hey, I'm doing okay, or a fever spiked or whatever, so we can enact some of these um, kind of afterthought type of things. You know, we heard about these, um, the antibodies, um, uh, the Regeneron antibody that's approved that the utilization is very low. And I think people's recognition and understanding how to get it, you know, I think most academic centers have it. So I think if you are at a center or in private practice, community practice, you know, talking with colleagues to, hey, I've got a patient, can you see them quickly or, you know, get access to these therapies and inquiring with your own hospital systems, uh, that'll be important. Obviously, the hand hygiene, the, the mask, uh, and, and avoiding these, you know, most of the, my patients that have gotten COVID have kind of done everything right. Um, it's, it's been people kind of bringing it to them, whether it's a spouse or a family member or um, some other family member or kind of small get together. And so I think um, our patients are very cognizant and they're trying to do their best, but I think still being very aware that it's not just you doing everything correctly. It's, it's trusting those around you and, and kind of reiterating that and educating that and um, definitely being available and notifying very early on if there's an exposure and or symptoms. So, so we can jump on these newer treatments that are, are available. This has been great. This has been a great discussion. And I thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CLL to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Here you can also find the transcript and links to the papers discussed. For other oncology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash oncology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits. Mm -hmm.